Welcome to Naturistic. This is a show about biology and natural history and things like that. My name is Nash Turley. I am a biologist. My name is Hamilton Boyce, and I am friends with a biologist. <laughs> no, I'm also an amateur. I don't know. What am I? I have a background in biology, but I'm not a biologist. There you go. Yeah. What do you do? You, <laughs> do you are are you in a position where you have to define yourself by your career? Uh, you mean just in life? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, someone asked me what I did yesterday, and I. I literally like fumbled. I was like, I, well, I, <laughs> hmm, that's actually, yeah, I don't, <laughs> I basically, cause you know, historically I'm like, I'm a musician and my day job is I make websites, but now I'm like shifting away from the website stuff. I'm not doing that that much. So it's like, I'm, I'm doing video and photo stuff. I'm starting to do more of that. And I, and I also am a musician and I record stuff for other people and I do some sound for film and I also do still a little bit of web. And it's like, this is not a, this is not a real answer. <laughs> so it's just yeah. complicated now. Yeah. I don't know. Could you just like go with creative or artist or something? Yeah. Yeah. If I, if I, uh, can get the balls up for being like, I'm a creative. <laughs> uh, Maybe isn't the best, uh, I don't know, vibe, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Depends I mean, who you're talking to. Yeah, people say that. It's like a valid thing, but it feels slightly pretentious to me. But, um, you know, I'm also, whatever. I'm also pretentious. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's been a while. We had a, a bit of a hiatus there. The owl episode came out recently, but I think we recorded that like, I don't know, four months ago or something. Has it been that long? Yeah, I, I know when I listened to it, I was like, it was fun. It was like listening to some other people talking. Yeah, part part of the reason is I moved. I moved from Florida to Pennsylvania. And, uh, you know, just stuff was going on and didn't get around to getting back to this. But I'm glad to be back. And uh, the TikTok channel was just blowing up so hard that you just couldn't couldn't keep it all together. It is, it is interesting. There is a choice that needs to be made of what to spend time on. Cause for quite a while in that hiatus, I was doing like almost daily videos. Yeah. And like that pretty quickly adds up to the amount of time I would research for a podcast. Totally. So, <laughs> uh, although it's in smaller chunks it I'm sure I spent as much time on that in the, in that, you know, break period as, as doing the podcast or similar maybe. Yeah, totally. What are we talking about today, Nash? Well, even just saying what it is comes with its complications, which we will circle back to. But the, I think, most official common name for this species is a common woodlouse. However, I don't feel like most people actually use that term. Um, so I guess what are maybe just as a preview to a couple names, just so know what people know what we're talking about. What are what are maybe the few other most common common names yeah i would say it seems like the most common ones are pillbug roly-poly i i use the term potato bugs growing up but that seems less common uh woodlouse is definitely one that especially people in the uk are using so some of those are yeah. some of the more common ones in like like most common names that refers to a wide variety of species Although the specific species we're focusing on today is very common and probably most people around the world see it or have seen it just because it's a 
worldwide distributed human-associated species. Yeah. The scientific name is Porcelio scaber, which I'm sure I'm saying wrong, but you know, whatever. So what what would you say they, they look like? One Before we even get into that, there was one almost question I have for you, which is like, so there's another species that's called common woodlouse. And then there's yeah. and then there's the Porcelio scaber, which is also which is the common rough woodlouse or simply rough right. woodlouse. So like I know they're both in the same family or even subfamily. Hmm. Yeah. So I there are many other species of Porcelio in different places, so it could be referring to that, but the other very common human associated species is the one that can roll into a ball, um, which is armadillium something. That genus is armadillium. And they're very often often found together. So I'm not sure if that's what it's being referring to or more closely related species to the Porcilio. Yeah. It could be both, probably. I mean, that's common name issues. Yeah, totally. Yeah, the one that, um, I don't know, the one that Wikipedia lists as common woodlouse is Oniscus Acellus. Oh, okay. Yeah, I'm not I not a name I'd come across. Yeah. Anyway. I I, I did have a, a a prior experience trying to identify some of these species because uh I did a little experiment in a ecology class I was teaching where I had students go collect these from just like a pile of wood and they brought them back to the lab and they had to come up with a little experiment that they could do with them like collect some data and test a hypothesis of some sort, which is pretty fun. Yeah, I am sold. I uh, I kind of just like prime them with like, well, y- you can measure how fast they can run and you can measure their size and weight and stuff like that. Um, so they mostly did things related to that and they set up these little tracks. Um, it's kind of like a horse race <laughs> and you have a little chute and open it up and then kind of like tap behind them and then measure how fast they ran. And then you could correlate that with, you know, body size or whatever. So it's kind of fun fun. having all these college kids like (laughs) doing little (laughs) wood lice races. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, But there were two common, like, you know, you go to any like trash pile or, um, you know, leaf litter or whatever. You'd often find both the armadillium one and the porcelia one. Yeah. The one we're talking about, they're pretty flat and they have these big, like almost like armored plates on their body. Yeah. And they're segmented. They have seven body segments, each with this big plate, and also seven pairs of legs. Uh, so if there was any thought that they might be an insect, that should debunk that right <laughs> away because they have 14 legs instead of six. Yeah. This common, this species is native to Europe. Um, but yeah, as I mentioned, they're, they're all around the world, even like remote islands and stuff. I'm guessing you didn't think they were insects or what, what did you know? Like... Current, currently, I currently knew that they were not insects, but um, as far as like when I was a kid and I was introduced to them, I don't know. Yeah, I probably didn't really think too hard about that. But um, yeah, I mean, they don't feel too much like insects. They feel definitely more, you know, like, I don't know. I mean, I, I guess a good comparison that comes up a lot with some of the common names is like armadillo or something, you know? Um, yeah. So if, if, the, if something like that is, you know, they're very like, they're very prehistoric looking. So I think that kind of puts them in their own little zone. Yeah. Um, so they're not insects, but they are arthropods. So this is kind of a 
fairly esoteric term, but it's a useful term because an arthropod is like all sorts of animals that have an exoskeleton and jointed legs. And that includes spiders and insects, but it also includes crustaceans, Mm -hmm. which is what these are. Um, And so that means pill bugs and wood lice, they're crustaceans. And then more specifically, the type of crustacean they are is isopods, which is their family order probably not family order right yeah yeah, yeah. and um and so most crustaceans are in the ocean like almost all of them really so there are um some crabs that spend part of their life on land uh but they i believe all have an aquatic larval form um and isopods i believe are the only crustacean that are fully terrestrial and uh, about half of isopod species are terrestrial, and half of them are marine. Okay, um, got it. I was I was gonna I was scratching my head a little bit there, but so it's possible for some isopods to be fully terrestrial throughout their life cycle. Yes. Yeah. Whereas all the others not. Exactly. Yeah. So crabs can be terrestrial. So like coconut crabs, for example, as adults, they'll um, spend a lot of their time on land, or maybe maybe all their time. Um, but they go back to the ocean to breed and then they have tiny little, um, planktonic larval forms mm-hmm. that they develop in the ocean and then eventually get larger. And, um, whereas isopods can be fully terrestrial. And I don't know if there are ones that like go back and forth. I don't think so. I did read that there are a few freshwater species, but most of them are either terrestrial or marine. So maybe some of the freshwater ones will come up on land. I, I, I don't know. Mm-hmm. One of the common names that you got in response to your Twitter post um, was, I don't even know if this is a joke or not. This is how out there the, some of these common names are, but one of them was land shrimp. Okay. And I was like, that sounds kind of like a joke, but also I totally believe that that's what someone calls it. Yeah, I mean, yeah, that could be a common name that's derived from a little bit deeper understanding of the biology since they're crustaceans. Right. And so are shrimp. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're, yeah, they're more closely related to shrimp than they are to any insect. Yeah. Their marine history partially explains one of the really important aspects of their biology, which is that they dry out really easily. And there's two reasons for that. One is that their exoskeleton is not kind of water sealed. They don't have this waxy coating that insects have that Mm -hmm. helps keep them from drying out. And they breathe externally through these things that are I saw them referred to as pseudo lungs. They're essentially like gills. If you look on the underside of a wood louse, it'll have these white patches. That's essentially what it breathes through. And it, because it's these external gills, it has to be wet to be able to diffuse um, gases across the surface. Uh-huh. Wild. So yeah, if they're going to breathe, they can't dry out. Um, so <laughs> that's you why know, you find most them. Most of them like to breathe. Just <laughs> Yeah. So they tend to be found you know, under logs in the wet leaf litter. Um, but if it is a wet place, they can be out and about. Uh, so they can live up in the trees, like moss up in the trees if it's a wet place. Uh, and they'll come out, and if you go out at night, you tend to see them crawling around because you know, the relative humidity tends to be higher at mm-hmm. night. And one other thing I saw, it said that their night activity is determined quite a bit by the wind speed. So if it's windier out, that'll dry them out more so they're less active. Yeah, that makes sense. They're out, they come out on still nights. Yeah, and yeah, that, that reminds me of, um, I try to attempt to view the world through a, um, 
cold-blooded animal's <laughs> eyes yeah. or perspective. Mm-hmm. So if you like think of a, I mean, well, there's lots of cold-blooded animals, but like a, a lizard or something, if it's a hot day, then it's like, oh, then they can run around and they have all this energy. But if it's a you know cool day, then they're sluggish and everything. Mm. Um, so like the temperature is everything to them. It yeah. shapes their whole ability to live and move and hunt. And mm. you imagine, I just imagine them being kind of like down and depressed when it's cold. <laughs> it's amazing that they never developed uh, air conditioning, you know? That they never developed air conditioning. Well, I, or, or heat. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, I think that would be the top thing for them to evolve <laughs> if they got some more like technology. <laughs> anyway. So when it comes to the, um, isopods, then they're cold-blooded as, as all, all arthropods with some minor exceptions. Um, and they're super, um, affected by humidity. So it's like the, the immediate weather conditions must just shape their experience of the world to an extent, I think a lot more than it would for us. That's interesting that they're like, with that in mind, knowing how widespread they are, because it almost seems like, Mm -hmm. well, certain extreme climates, you know, or just any kind of not ideal climate seems like maybe they wouldn't be hanging around too much, but they're just like, they figure it out, I guess. Yeah. I mean, I I don't think they're common in deserts. I'd be interesting to see if you could find them in LA. I mean, probably places where people are irrigating a lot and stuff. I bet they're around, Mm -hmm. but out, out in, you know, rocky desert areas, probably not many. Right. Um, But you know, the rest of the somewhat more cool or tropical, uh, there's just rainy regions. They, they seem to just do fine. Yeah. Plus, you know, even drier regions, you have your, your wet places. So mm-hmm. there's, there's logs everywhere. Well, I don't know if there's logs everywhere, but, <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, I mentioned these ones cannot roll into a ball. Some of the other common Boo. species can, <laughs> can fully roll up, but, but this one, these ones can't. So they just like kind of scrunch a little bit or they just stay oval shaped. Uh, yeah, I don't, I don't even know if they do it at all. Yeah. They might. I'm not sure. Get it together, guys. Yeah. <laughs> uh, they they Start are... Start stretching every day. <laughs> that's what people tell me. Sorry, go on. Did people tell you to stretch every day? Yeah, that's why. That's the same advice that I was going? giving for them. Um, completely ignoring it and not doing it. <laughs> <laughs> I, re- I remember, like, I think one time when we were both in in New York or something, I was like doing some stretching. And uh, I think your response, because uh, I was like, oh, you should try this. Or, and he's like, I don't think you understand how painful that is for me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or something like that. <laughs> yeah. Not, does not come naturally. Anyway, same, same with the, the rough wood louse. Yeah. So much in common. Yeah. Are you also a detritivore? <laughs> it depends on... Uh, how hungry I am, I guess. <laughs> uh, so yeah, they are detritivores, which means they prefer to eat things that are kind of at a certain state of decomposition. So like rotting leaves, rotting fungi, dead meat, feces, any anything that's loaded with bacteria. Because actually, I think a lot of what they're actually eating is the bacteria. Mm. Um, and they also participate in coprophagy. Mm. Has has that been a, a word that I've, that <laughs> I've probably, I'm sure, I'm it's sure I've. It's news to me. Um, it means eating your own feces. Mm, that is a great word. That is a good <laughs> one. I'm going to write that down in my notebook. 
uh, rabbits do it, for example. Hmm. Uh, but there's two hypotheses for why um, isopods do this, which is um, it helps them maintain copper in their diet or in their system. Okay. Um, and, and that's because um, they use copper in the protein that transports oxygen in their blood, where our, um, we use iron. Mm-hmm. Their um, oxygen-carrying protein in their blood is based on copper, so they really need to make sure to have that copper in their system. Yeah, and if that takes eating a little bit of your own feces, then so be it. <laughs> yeah. The other uh, hypothesis, which I don't think is mutually exclusive, um, is that it helps maintain the bacteria in their gut Mm-hmm. And because they keep a really complex collection of bacteria in their gut that helps them break down nutrients in their food and to break down cellulose. Mm, right. Uh, which is something we cannot do. Yeah. But, you know, other mammals can. You know, grazing mammals can do it. That's why they have these big complex guts full of microbes. The, the microbes are breaking down that cellulose. Mm-hmm. And that's why you're not supposed to eat the wooden spoon that comes with the ice cream. <laughs> the only reason i don't do it (laughs) yeah i mean it's frowned upon it's you know you can do it but not recommended that's what they told me at least that reminds me of one time i forget who someone in my family was making a milkshake and they're like stabbed the wooden spoon down there a little bit too far (laughs) (laughs) and they're like there's like a little bit of the spoon gone and they're like well I don't know. Maybe we can still drink this. <laughs> it was just like full of splinters. Oh, God. It was not, not savable. <laughs> but if we had those sweet microbes, maybe we could. Yeah. It doesn't really solve this stabbing in the mouth problem, though. <laughs> mm, yeah. Could be worth it still. Yeah. Uh, so because they're detritivores, they play an important role in creating soil and recycling nutrients uh, within ecosystems. Um, so you think of all those leaves and sticks and branches and carcasses on the forest floor, eventually those all break down to make soil. Um, and it's, um, detritivores and, and fungi and bacteria that all make that happen. Good work. Good work. We got some more waste talk. We talked a bit about feces now onto urine. Excellent. I was just, just waiting to get past the poop into the pee. We talked about nitrogenous waste a bit. Uh, in the last episode with owls because birds have a different form of nitrogenous waste than mammals do. But isopod, isopods have, a, again, a third different type of nitrogenous waste, uh, which is that they release it in the form of ammonia gas, hmm. which is like pretty toxic stuff. Yeah. I, I actually meant to look up what, like, I think ammonia gas is like things that have been used as in like chemical warfare. Uh, but I'm not. I'm not positive about that. I could be wrong. <laughs> it's not the most common poisonous gas reference that people always use, which uh, people are like, "That's what they used in the in the gas chambers in the Holocaust." And you're like, "Oh my God! Why do you have to continue to bring this up?" Yeah. So that ammonia gas may be in some cases used as a defense against predators. So basically think of like a big spider or something coming up and they just like fart out a big cloud of toxic gas in their face. Yeah, that's a good move. Yeah. It's kind of a skunk type uh, situation. Yeah. It seemed like that was speculative. I didn't see any, you know, hardcore evidence for that, but yeah, it's possible. There are other bugs that do it. There's a, it's a good story. Therefore, it's factual to me. 
there is a well-studied thing that a, there's a predator that uses a toxic gas. It's a type of um, lacewing, and they'll go up and like belch out this toxic fart on their prey, and it stuns them, and then they catch mm. them and eat them. Gnarly. So um, wood lice and various other isopods can get infected with this virus that is uh, called isopod iridescent virus. And when they get a full-blown infection, it turns their whole body bright iridescent blue. Whoa. What a cool infection. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, This is caused, like, the virus particles form a crystalline structure in their tissues. Mm. And then that causes the tissues to bounce back uh, blue wavelengths. Wild. Uh, It's pretty gnarly. I guess once they're in that blue stage, they'll pretty much die a few days later. Mm -hmm. It takes about a month after infection for them to to die so pretty gnarly yeah like is it lucky if you find one or is it uh unlucky or i mean i want to find one yeah so i'm gonna say it's lucky okay but you just you not, know. just not for them <laughs> right <laughs> uh they have a pretty interesting reproductive uh deal so we've got past the feces and the urine onto the sex okay <laughs> the pyramid of life <laughs> the necessary components of any um nature documentary style edutainment <laughs> right although i guess i don't actually have anything about their sex but just reproduction the the females have a brood pouch so they have this little like wet container pouch thing underneath their body and they'll hold the eggs in there and then after they hatch they'll also hang out in there for quite a while so they kind of have like this maternal care for a little bit yeah and they'll typically have about 20 babies, and they can reproduce in perfect conditions up to about three times a year. Hmm. Cool. Pretty, pretty fecund. But as far as like small arthropods go, not, you know, there's bugs that lay like way more eggs than that. Yeah. So maybe like, you know, 80 babies a year is a lot, but not an extreme amount for a uh, small bug. Mm-hmm. They're keeping it, they're churning them out, but they're not going, they're not going totally overboard with it yeah one reason why that may work as a strategy is that they can live pretty long uh it takes them one to two years to reach sexual maturity Hmm. and they can live up to five years wow i was really surprised by yeah definitely don't think of like the little bugs underneath the log you know kicking it for five years totally that seems like above average for what i would expect something of that size for sure they've been used as bio indicators for pollution do those, uh, those words mean anything to you? Yeah, they do. Like uh, kind of a canary in a coal mine sort of scenario. Yeah, they can, they can be used in two different ways. One way is you can go like collect them from the wild and then like measure their chemistry. Mm-hmm. I mean, sometimes I wonder why you do that rather than just collecting the leaf litter. But maybe if they like accumulate, you know, heavy metals or something, mm-hmm. then you could get a more accurate or more sensitive measure. Yeah. Um, and, you know, they eat leaf, leaf litter and decomposing stuff. So if it was in the environment, you'd, they'd probably run across it. Right. Also, they have, you know, they metabolize. So they're spitting stuff out of their system and mm. through, you know, like uh, over a period of time. Whereas if you just sample like something, yeah. if you happen to get a chunk of dirt that's very polluted, then, you know what I mean? Like a little bit more all over the place, I would imagine. Yeah, you might be getting a a broader sample of the whole region mm-hmm. rather than just like the one spot you took a sample from. Right. Um, the other way they can be used is... They did um, the sampling for you. Yeah, right. They're, they're little field technicians. Right. And they just didn't happen to know that they were 
submitting to a death sentence by <laughs> volunteering was not included in the job application. <laughs> yeah. Like, and it's unpaid? God. <laughs> <laughs> but it's good experience. <laughs> good exposure, anyway. Uh, they can also be used in feeding trials, which a, a few studies have done, where basically if you take leaf litter or whatever they might be eating from different places and then like see what they prefer to eat is one way. So you could look at preference or you could look at their performance on, you know, different food stuffs as like a way of, you know, instead of just saying like, oh, there's a bunch of cadmium in the soil, that's bad. But you could say, oh, and it's actually affecting the growth and survival of these pretty rugged little bugs. Yeah. Uh, so it's a yeah, feeding, feeding trial um, style. Any sodium benzoate in there? <laughs> that's bad. Yeah. Was that a Simpsons reference? It was. Excellent. Yeah. Well, that's my general introduction. Did you have any other like preconceptions or facts about them that you wanted to get out at the beginning? I don't think so. I think the main thing that I, well, we didn't cover too much of what they looked like, but I think it's pretty well known what they look like. And you can also use the internet to look at pictures of them. But yeah, little oval shaped things with seven sets of legs and scaly armadillo type backs and stuff like that but which yeah. these particular ones do not roll up into a ball but their cousins of various distances uh are able to roll up into a ball um but then yeah the other thing is just like the the breadth of like how much how many species or groups there are in the you know that are considered wood lice wood louse okay yeah i i didn't even look that up i was trying to focus on a species and not get too broad and get like into talking about isopods in general. Mm -hmm. uh, but there are, you know, it's a big group and I think they all, they all have a similar vibe and probably, you know, get the same names. Yeah. Um, one thing about the, their looks that I didn't um, write down, but I read is that um, this species does vary quite a bit and they can be like slate gray. Uh, but, uh, they can also be pretty light colored with some yellow spots and things. Hmm. And I believe they're sexually dimorphic. Um, I think it's the females that are more light colored that can have some like colored spots and things. Cool. So yeah, just, just looking at color might be a little confusing to know exactly what you're looking at. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, when they're younger, I think they're different colors as well. Cool. So you can maybe possibly do a little bit of IDing based on the way that their outward appearance is. As far as like gender and and age and stuff, I don't know if in crustaceans it's called um, hemimetabolus, but in insects that's what it's called. When the, every stage they just molt and get a little bigger, they don't go through like a big metamorphosis, mm -hmm. like a you know, like a butterfly. Mm -hmm. So the small ones have the same look and shape, uh, but they do get an extra set of legs at one point because I think when they're born they have six pairs. Hmm. So if you really wanted to count legs, you might really get to get into how old they are. <laughs> At their bat mitzvahs, they get an extra set of legs. Yeah. I, I mean, I think when I went, you know, it's pretty often when people call me, they're like, oh, what are you up to tonight? I'm like, oh, counting isopod legs. <laughs> Let's uh, take a little break and then we'll come back with a little behavioral study.
Welcome back. We got, as usual, a little study to talk about. Research. And it starts with an extra fun vocab word. Thigmokinesis. Hmm. <laughs> so kinesis, uh, could probably guess it has to do with movement. And thigno, thigmo, uh, I assume is like touch. Because what it means is that their movement is reduced when they are in close contact with other objects. Hmm. So imagine if, you know, like if you're out in the open, you're going to be freaked out and running around. But once you get in a tight place and you're touching all this stuff, then you can like chill out. Hmm. Thigmokinesis. Okay. So is it sort of like how when you get a bird in a little enclosed space and they just sort of chill out and like stop squirming around and stuff? Um, I think so. I mean, that seems like the same thing. I don't see. Yeah. Yeah. I hadn't thought of that. Cool. This goes along with one of their common things they do often in the wild, which is to cluster together in aggregations. So I'm sure you've seen this. If you flip over a a board or a log or a trash can, you'll just see a big cluster of them. Um, That's what they do. They always do that. And they can be really abundant in some places. So studies have found in forests, they can be up to 800 of them in a meter squared. Hmm. And in some grasslands, up to 3,000 of them per meter squared. Whoa. That's a straight up uh, rave. Yeah. It's like a isopod Coachella. <laughs> yeah. And they're not always just one species. Sometimes different species will cluster together, uh, different isopods. And so there's a question related you know, when you have animals doing this type of behavior, they could be due to two different things. They could be clustering together because of a shared individual preference. So they have a shared preference for just this particular, you know, tight, uh, wet spot. Mm-hmm. Or that they're social and they're actually coming together for the purposes of being together. Yeah. Which aren't, they could be both, of course. Yeah. That sounds testable. Exactly. <laughs> you know what's coming. <laughs> this is how you set up science studies is uh, an unanswered question. So um, this study went out and collected just regular old uh, wood lice in France and then brought them into these uh, little arenas uh, where they could try to test uh, these questions. And so imagine like a little circular arena that's got like walls on the side mm-hmm. and it's big bright light shining down on top of it. And they don't like bright light. They tend to move away from, from light. And they will take a, you know, a bunch of these um, wood lice and put them in, a middle, in the middle of it in a way where they're kind of stuck in the middle. Um, and they'll just kind of get used to all being together in the middle. And then within the arena, there are on each side of the arena, there are two uh, shaded areas there. It's like it's shaded and they can crawl underneath it. So those are like two possible zones where they might want to, you know, hang out. Like dugouts? Yeah. Yeah. In this case, they, they, it was actually just um, a sheet of uh, translucent red. What's that stuff they put over lights? Like at a, at a concert venue? Yeah. Like little plasticky light filter things. I think is the technical term for it. (laughs) Right. Um, So that was like, I think it was blocking the spectrum that's important to them or something. So they could still see them, but they would see it as like a dark place. Mm -hmm. Uh, So given that they're they're being released from the middle of this arena, and then they have two shady spots they can go to, 
based on the patterns of where they go to, they can test a null hypothesis and an alternate hypothesis. So the null would be that beha their behavior is based on individual preference, and they would just all on their own move to their favorite spot, in which case you would expect, on average, equal numbers of isopods under each shady area. So statistically, that would be the null result of just equal numbers in both of them. Mm -hmm. And the alternate would be um, based on social behavior, you would expect to find more of them in one uh, versus the other consistently in trial after trial. Yeah. So they were calling those like winners or losers, like a, a winner location or a loser location. <laughs> and this is assuming that the locations are exactly the same. Yeah. Because if one's better, yeah. then that doesn't really tell you <laughs> anything. Yeah, I think because it's such a controlled environment, like they built it and they know it's you know identical, right. yeah. then they can make that assumption. Right. So I think it's like, imagine if you like, released a bunch of college bros into a, a bunch of bars, <laughs> an area with a bunch of bars. And like the null would be, they would just like spread out into their favorite ones. Um, or they would like cluster in the popular one because they all want to be with where the other bros are. Yeah. I don't know that that analogy was necessary. <laughs> <laughs> no, unnecessary, but very colorful and enjoyable. <laughs> so they did this test 87 times hmm. um, and they found that nice there was, number. yeah, they actually did it 88 times and one of them, they never clustered together, which was the one outlier. Huh. Um, but in 87 of 88 times, they aggregated together and um, those aggregations tended to, on average, had 90% of the individuals that were in the arena hmm. would cluster together in one place. I'm slightly upset that they just had one that had different results and they're like, yeah, we're not going to use that one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it is a little weird. I think because if there was a bunch of them that they did that, it would be a red flag. Yeah. Um, because they're studying aggregation behavior, there's not really data they can measure if they don't aggregate. Got it. So it, it makes sense. Yeah. We'll um, give them a pass. Yeah. The statistical test they're doing is testing if there's normally uh, a winner or a loser spot or if they're both equally winners. Um, so are they finding evidence of the hot bar that everyone wants to go to? So in 77% of the trials, there was a kick and club that all of the isopods wanted to hang out at. Mm -hmm. um, so that's pretty strong evidence that they're, they're clustering together for social reasons because three quarters of the time when they aggregate, they're choosing to mostly aggregate in one spot rather than just splitting up and both picking different spots. And to double clarify, the, the spots are changing. Um, what do you mean they're changing? Like it's not always one spot that they always oh, correct. go to. Yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, they had two spots that I think they did like some randomization of some sort, but yeah, it wasn't always the same one. It was just one of them was a winner and one of them was a loser in three quarters of the trials. Got it. Right. Yeah. Good point. Yeah. That, that was in there. It wasn't always the same one. And this tended to happen pretty quickly. It normally only took three minutes for them to aggregate in one or the other spots. Mm, yeah. Did they also determine who the popular uh, popular individuals were? No, that's that's a good idea. I think, um, you know, if you have this social behavior, 
then it opens up the idea that there could be they're following someone yeah. like it's one that is has the the smelliest pheromones or the the sweetest antennae or who knows <laughs> right yeah it, that seems pretty testable as well you just mark individuals so you know you know you could then see if um i guess you'd have to like probably videotape their movement and see if like there's one that gets to a place and then they follow or something mm-hmm. um i've seen studies in ants where they do that they like have little um, painted on little colored barcodes and then they have software that can like track their individual movement and they can record all sorts of stuff about their colony behavior. Hmm. That's cool. I dig it. So, you know, given they have this aggregation behavior, which was well known, but now they're really strongly showing that there's a social component to this aggregation. Then it's like, well, why do they aggregate? And this study doesn't really address that too much, but the main hypothesis seems to be that it helps uh, with water loss. Like if they're all clustering together in the hot, sweaty club, mm-hmm. they're just, you know, keeping their pseudo lungs wet. Right. Uh, it seem, it sounded, based on some of the citations, it looked like some old studies may have supported that. Um, there is some reference to, you know, like defense against predators as well. I don't, I don't know if there's any evidence for that. But when it comes to aggregation, because they have this like toxic ammonia gas, I uh, was wondering if like they have to, um, you know, regulate, they have to leave the aggregation to go vent off some gas or how do, how do they deal with that? Right. Like how they're not just poisoning on themselves. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's gotta be a toss up because if, if the benefit is keeping the moisture in, yeah, maybe you just go go out in the hall to go fart and then come back when you're done. I don't know. Yeah. I think that could be a cool, you know, like if you had a good way of seeing, I mean, how do you, it'd be hard to know when they're doing it. I think you'd have to have like some, maybe if you had like a cool chemistry in a chamber where it would fluoresce Mm -hmm. so you could see it or something. Yeah. That would also be some great footage to just to watch pill bugs farting. (laughs) Well, life goals. We'll okay. we'll circle back to make right. the pill bug gaseous urine, you know, video yeah, I mean, ten years from that's now. That's the thing where, you know, the the title on YouTube alone is enough to, to garner millions of views. Yeah. There there's a bit of hand wavy like potential implications for this research. Given that they are used in some of these bioindicator studies. If we want to use their aggregating behavior or their decision-making to understand something about the environment, this research suggests we do need to take into account the social component. Because like they may look like they're choosing this area over here, and you might interpret that because there's less pollution or something, but maybe it's just because that's where the hot club is. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, that, you know, in terms of using these critters for those uses may have some application to better understanding their social nature. Yeah. Nice. Well, that was the little study. Let's take one quick little break and then we'll wrap it up with some fun times cultural hour. Woo. Welcome back. We got cultural hour here. So uh, what did you find for uh, some cultural importance or references to 
our favorite isopods. Yeah, I mean, one of the most exciting, interesting cultural things is about about them is just their name, just because there's so many different regional name variations. And also this other layer of confusion where a lot of the common names also apply to other things that are just totally different. Yeah. Um, so that kind of has this, like one of the responses on yours was doodle bug. And I was like, that's, we, we talked, uh, we already <laughs> talked about a doodle bug. It's a different thing. Uh, like potato bug is another one. That's like, it's a name that goes to a different, a different animal. But, um, so it's kind of, yeah. it's, but it's interesting to hear, I don't know, kind of the different names and different regional things and stuff. So, um, and then, uh, and then I've got a couple poems that mention, that mention woodlouse. Okay. So I can, I can read those too. Pretty short. Yeah. Hit, hit us with a poem. Pop into the poem. All right. <laughs> Pop in a poem, baby. <laughs> so this, uh, this first one is called Lost Love by Robert Graves. And I have a little background on Robert Graves here. Uh, born in 1895 in Wimbledon, a suburb of London. He's a poet, lecturer, and a novelist. Is that of tennis fame? Wimbledon of tennis fame, yes. Where the tennis thing happens? Yeah, that's the one. Okay. Lost Love by Robert Graves. His eyes are quickened so with grief. He can watch a grass or leaf every instant grow. He can clearly through a flint wall see or watch the startled spirit flee from the throat of a dead man. Across two counties, he can hear and catch your words before you speak. The woodlouse or the maggot's weak clamor rings in his sad ear, and noise so slight it would surpass credence, drinking sound of grass, worm talk, clashing jaws of moth, chumbling holes in cloth, the groan of ants who undertake giant loads for honor's sake, their sinews creak, their breath becomes thin, whir of spiders when they spin, and minute whispering, mumbling sighs of idle grubs and flies. This man is quickened so with grief, he wanders godlike or like thief, inside and out, below, above, without relief, seeking lost love. Huh. I always struggle to concentrate on poetry. I didn't even catch the, the isopod reference. What, what, where was it? The woodlouse or the maggot's ah. weak clamor rings in his sad ear. It's, it's interesting because the, the flow of it, the rhymes are at the ends of lines, yeah. but they're not at the ends of sentences necessarily. So like if I right. was to read that as a sentence, I would say the woodlouse or the maggot's weak clamor rings in his sad ear. But the way that they have it yeah. phrased out, it's rhyming with the previous line which is and catch your words before you speak so the woodlouse or the maggots weak clamor rings in his sad ear um yeah i mean i'm definitely not a, a poetry um i mean expert would be not even worth saying that word just i i, I, I don't I, have, I struggle with poetry as well and it's something that i've been trying to get more into to like understand more and there's certain poets who i can kind of vibe with a little bit more but um i mean the general gist of I feel like what's going on is just this guy who's really lovesick and he's just kind of like experiencing all these really subtle things in nature. Okay. 
So like heightened senses. Yeah. His, his eyes are quickened so with grief he can watch a grass or a leaf every instant grow. So that's the yeah. opening of it. So you're right. Yeah. I mean, I think because it seemed to have like a, a theme of decomposition there in the middle, I was just sort of imagining either someone died and they were thinking about them being dead and breaking down or yeah, something of that sort. Just maybe just right. from a biological perspective, that's what I was thinking. Yeah, totally. it, Given that I was kind of struggling to follow the words <laughs> on their own. You're like, okay, worm, I know that. Uh, <laughs> see, there, it does say, I don't, yeah, I don't fully, it's like, he can clearly through a flint wall see or watch the startled spirit flee from the throat of a dead man. So I don't really, yeah, I mean, is, is there someone, did someone literally die? I don't really know. Someone yeah. who knows about poetry can send us a message and explain what this means. It's interesting. I feel like I love lyrics of, from music, and I feel like I spend a lot of time thinking about and poetry in that context. But it always just has a tends to have a different vibe. Yeah, and I think my my brain knows how to interpret lyrics totally, um, but struggles with poetry. And it seems like they're similar, the same thing, but it also seems like they're not. <laughs> yeah, totally. Well, it's interesting because with with music, you have the obviously the delivery is is built into the recording you know if, yeah. if it's a re- recording that's famous whereas poetry the delivery or like the rhythm comes from the words and the you know line breaks and stuff like that yeah there's a lot to fill in on your own that maybe that's why i have a hard time concentrating on it because there's like there's um the full thing isn't presented to you i don't know maybe it's slightly a different the similar uh distinction between reading a book versus watching a movie yeah, there's, or, there's more space for creative interpretation yeah. in the, the poem version. Totally. It's like poetry uh, is like lyric, advanced lyrics. Yeah. So did you, like the, the presence of the, the woodlouse in there, did it, did it seem important to you? I mean, the woodlouse in particular did not seem important in the scheme of things, but I think, the, I think it's cool that just to get that reference, because it's sort of, it's all these different, you know, little bits of nature in there. So it's, it's fun to get that woodlouse reference yeah. in this context, you know? Yeah. It wasn't like a pivotal, pivotal, it wasn't a pivotal, <laughs> Jesus, <laughs> it wasn't a pivotal part of it. It was just kind of, because one of the themes was just listing or mentioning a bunch of stuff that was happening. So it was a thing that was around in Wimbledon and it got added. Yeah. Just, it's just uh, nature doing its thing, being subtle, clamoring, it's weak clamor ringing in his sad ear. Yeah. Along with worm talk, which I'm sure you're <laughs> familiar with worm talk. Is that where you um, tie a worm between two cans and talk through it? <laughs> I think so. Yeah. Okay. And the groan of ants who undertake giant loads for honor's sake. That's, you know, that makes sense to us biology people. Say it again. Um, the groan of ants who undertake giant loads for honor's sake. Okay. You They're know, doing hard work for the good of the colony. Yeah. Just for, you know, just for honor. They're just lifting a thousand yeah. times their weight or whatever it is. So. I- I think that's, that's, you know, the more you look into those things, I agree with your sense of just, it is a poem about capturing the sensory experience of a 
specific moment in time. Totally. Then I guess it's up to you to decide what's going on in the person's head during that moment of time. Yeah. It's, maybe it's just like when this came out, it was right after World War One or something, and that's when everyone was thinking about, you know, bodies piling up in the trenches or I don't know, maybe there's some cultural thing that happened at that time where the context would make more sense mm -hmm. or not. <laughs> yeah. Well, it was um, certainly before Netflix. So they at least were looking for other sorts of entertainment. Yeah. The, the collective consciousness was around a random poet in Wimbledon potentially. Yeah, or I just mean in terms of paying attention to, you know, small little natural things that are happening. That's true. Yeah, I guess that theme is interesting because that is sort of like the theme of naturistic. Yeah. The naturistic media empire is to like <laughs> pay attention to little stuff totally. that you might not otherwise look at. Yeah. And try to view it with some sense of curiosity and compassion. Totally. Even if you are streaming some media entertainment on your screen <laughs> at the same time it's still one eye out the window or whatever or in in the window um, okay i have one more for you this is a poem called the woodlouse so this will get a little bit more action for you and it's pretty short a uh, poet is edith l m king uh born in south africa became a student in england and afterwards taught in a place called bloemfontein which i don't okay. know where that is What's a rough date we got? Oh, yeah. Um, she was born... I don't know when she was born, but she was the headmistress at this school. Uh, she retired in 1922. Okay. So we're, we're, we are in World War I era, potentially, or probably before. Yeah. Late 1800s, early 1900s, probably. Okay. Here we go. The Woodlouse. The Woodlouse looks as if he were a medieval knight who's found it wiser not to keep his armor very bright. Experience has taught him, too, to curl up like a pill when danger seems to threaten him, and then keep very still. This trick has often been the means of saving him from hurt, because his foes mistake him for a little lump of dirt. Just as the enemy must find, are soldiers hard to see when they are lying on the ground, all clad in dull khaki. My emphasis on the khaki there. Um, so that nice. one, yeah, is very focused on woodlouse. It's about the woodlouse, comparing it to soldiers and camouflage and stuff. However, obviously, this is a, a curler, a curler, a curler upper, so not quite the right species, but felt it felt close enough. Yeah, I mean that's neat in that it really is um, capturing quite a bit of their behavior and biology in there. Yeah. Like this is a this is a person that spent some time figuring out what they do. Totally. Observant. And then saw a parallel with um, you know, saw some humans doing some similar things. Yeah. Or not. Totally. Or thinking they should. I don't know. There's a there's a side note um or a footnote that says khaki, word from Urdu, word dusty. Dull yellow brown cloth used in uniforms of British troops in South Africa in 1899. Okay, so so the the context there is really like a probably like a is it wait is this woman British or um she's uh, South Africa born in or South Africa. Africa, yeah. So she's from she's from South Africa. Okay, but she could be British or Afrikaans or 
Yeah, this is, or the picture of African, her yeah. is very small and black and white. Um, let me see if I can find a better picture of her. But it, this would be, um, so it sounds like you know, there was probably some. She's a white lady. Per, okay. Yeah. There's some pronounced like colonialism warfare going on mm-hmm. in that era, I presume. Yeah. So probably most most people have on their mind thinking about that stuff. And so it makes sense that you would uh, see an animal that, you know, reminds us all that so many of the people we know are going out fighting battles and stuff. Totally. Also, oh, here's her, her birthday too, 1871 through 1962. And uh, Wikipedia describes her as a painter who worked primarily with watercolors, concentrating on landscapes and other still life subjects, characterized by a high level of botanical detail. Oh. So okay. she paid attention to nature in, in her other mediums as well. It's interesting. Like there was kind of an era of the naturalist that was like a, that was a, a common upper class thing to be. If you had the, you know, the privilege to be rich and have free time, then a lot of times you did that or what, you know, what you spent your time doing was being a naturalist. Totally. That's cool. And yeah, I mean, just think like Darwin being the key prime example. Celebrity. He's just celebrity like celebrity naturalist. Privileged rich guy, yeah. basically, who could just do that for his life. It's like the equivalent um, of someone today who is an influencer. Yeah, yeah. I mean, a lot of people, these people were influencers. Like, they wrote books that were really popular. Like, um, I mean, if, if we were a, t- a type of show that uh, profiled people, uh, Alexander von Humboldt would be a, a good person because he's just such a curiosity-driven explorer and all about uh, documenting things all over the world. But that was, like, he was a huge superstar. When he died, there was like, I think hundreds of thousands of people in American cities that came out to mourn his death. Wow. Like he was a, he was a, you know, big shot. Like his books were super popular and they're like pretty like, you know, just like science books about, you know, plants and animals and ecology and stuff. That's awesome. Back to what you're saying about there not being Netflix or all this other, you know, media available. It makes sense that these types of, you know, artistically expressing views of nature and stuff was just a viable and popular form of entertainment, presumably. Totally. Should we get into some of these names? These common names? We got names. names. It's a lot of names. Not too long ago, I heard the idea about, um, there's a lizard I saw in Australia called the shingleback. Of course, but the point of the story is that it has a bunch of different common names. So I forget, I don't, I, that's the, the only one that I remember actually. <laughs> okay. Um, it's a skink. It's a blue tongue skink. And they're, they're, they're pretty common. And one article I was reading about them was saying, uh, you know, a testament to their importance to people is how many common names they have. Yeah. Which is one way to think about it. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm not sure that lots of common names for pill bugs means they're super important. I think there could be other reasons, mm-hmm. but maybe they are. I don't know. Yeah. But yeah, we've, we've obviously we've said a few of them, but let's, uh, let's go through some of the common and then weird and funny ones. Cool. So um, Nash posted a tweet asking people what they referred to pill bugs as or common name. Let me just read your tweet verbatim here. <laughs> What's your common name for these animals? Please respond with your answer and retweet a bit of social science for an upcoming podcast. That's this. And then you have pictures of, a wood, of three different wood louse. 
wood lice. Yeah. And actually, when I look closely, two of them, I think, are the species we're talking about. Then the other one's from Florida, which I think is a, or is a different species, but it looks similar. Yeah. <laughs> doesn't really matter. Yeah. <laughs> it's probably the most popular tweet I've had in the last five years. <laughs> <laughs> it's great because, um, you know, it's interactive. And then when people retweet it, then other people see it. And then they're like, oh, I have a different answer because there's so many names that the more it's like infinite names, the more people share, the more names show up. Yeah. So there's like 250 responses or so at this point. Wild. I'm just going to start with a few. Pillbug, classic. Roly polies. Yeah, lots of those. Classic. Good good name for kids. Isopods. Yeah. That's a scientist. Yeah. One of the first responses was like, I call them isopods. And I was like, are these all just going to be, <laughs> am I only followers scientists? But it, it, it branched out. So yeah. it's good. Uh, this is an, an Italian one, which is really good. I probably will mess up the pronunciation, but Porcelino di Terra, translation, Earth's Piglet. Yeah, there was a few um, romantic language ones that were similar. So I got Chilean Spanish, which was Chanchito de Tierra, which was Earth Piggy. And then per- Peru and Colombia, um, Cochinillas, I assume. Yeah. Which is Little Pig. Seemed like lots of um, Spanish speakers had that one from Spain and Mexico. Yeah. And then a different one from Colombia, Marinitos, little pigs, apparently. So all pig related. Yeah. The the romantic language speakers seem to like to think of them as pigs. Yeah. I mean, it's a little bit of a weird comparison, but I guess shape wise, they're sort of tubes. I don't know. I mean, they like to hang out in, in the dirt. I don't know. I mean, what's, Yeah. I, yeah, I had no idea. <laughs> Woodlouse is common one, seemed like particularly common in uh, Great Britain and in Europe and stuff like that. This is one that I mentioned, land shrimp. I, I, Googled, yeah. I Googled that one. There's results, so I think that's one that people use. Yeah. Um, this person responded for the, the Finland name, but um, it's Sira, which I don't know what that means, so... Yeah, there was there was a few other there was a Dutch one. I didn't uh copy the Dutch word, but the translation was basement pig. <laughs> which I thought was pretty great. That is fantastic. Uh and that same person also in in um various places in Europe it's mentioned as being called piss bug or piss a bug mm-hmm. or something like that. And I asked because uh, he they mentioned like, oh, as a reference to their presumed use. And I was like Okay, what's the presumed use? And apparently Middle Ages, his response was, Middle Ages, people used to like crush them up and like use it as a treatment for people that would wet the bed. Huh. So do you eat them or drink them? I don't know. You you transfer that that liquid urine to the gas, to the gas (laughs) nitrogenous waste and channel it that way. Right. Uh, Did we say potato bug yet? Um, I said it earlier. At some point, sure. I think it seemed like that was a a lot of Washington West Coast people said that. Yeah, that was the one that I used growing up primarily. There was a um, another uh, British Columbia regional one, which was Woodbug. Nice. Which two people from British Columbia mentioned. Cool. Logger loggers. <laughs> oh yeah, that's a funny one. And Slater. Slater. I that's... asked someone about that whether that was see you later. Oh. Because. Um, I, I had, uh, actually someone who was a, um, 
uh, external examiner on my PhD defense. He used to always sign his emails Slater. <laughs> oh, weird. <laughs> like, see you later. But their response was uh, they thought Slater was more a reference to rock, like slate rock or the color. Mm, right. That makes sense. Um, that was New Zealand or Australia mostly that said that. Yeah. Another Australia one was uh, Butcher Boy or Butchy Boy. Yeah. That's a funny one. Tank Bugs. There's a few of those. So, be- so bug. So bug, yeah. There are, I think, as some species, like more official names are so bug, I think. Mm. I mean, whatever common name is official. I mean, none of them are really official, anyways. But Right. Uh, there's this response from uh, a Russian that says, in Russian, roughly, weddies. And then there's the Russian word, which obviously, no idea how to say that. <laughs> and then the other one, also translated, is tiny watermelons. Which is really cute. <laughs> I like that one. Yeah. Dirt crab. Dirt crab. Here, I saw this one a couple times. One was someone from Argentina, Bicho Bolita, which I think if I looked up, it means uh, ball bug. Mm, nice. Accurate. There's this uh, Israeli one, Uri Kaduri. Uri, nice which rhyme is there. a name, and Kaduri is a cute name for a small ball. Okay. Oh man, there's still so many. There's <laughs> <laughs> like, I mean, this could just be an hour of just us listing, <laughs> listing common names. Oh, there's a, a French one is good. Uh, clo, cloporte. I don't mean, that's definitely not how you say it. Clopor. I don't know, whatever. Uh, which comes from closed door, referring oh, to yeah. their defense mechanism. Uh, or <laughs> an ancient regionalism for cave pig. <laughs> Prote pork, eh, yeah. Whatever. I think someone else responded, like chiming in, saying they thought it was cave related mm. on the on that one. Yeah, if I remember right. But definitely some. I mean, lots of themes of like. I mean, some of them are just like nonsense names. Yeah. Um. But you know, there's like definitely various wordplay around the way they look. Seems to be, <laughs> and then a uh, pig, <laughs> pig and dirt and caves and stuff yeah totally shapes and their behavior and where they like to hang out the potato bug one is interesting because there's another thing called the potato bug which is totally different which are really terrifying looking oh all of this like is a great example of you know why scientific names need to exist (laughs) yeah totally (laughs) otherwise this would just the world of biology would be total madness so you know Big thanks to Carl Linnaeus for coming up with the binomial scientific name system. <laughs> Shout out, Carl. Whoop, whoop. Yeah, I, I remember even just being in like Spanish-speaking countries and having people like natives try to explain birds to me and just being like, I just don't know. This is just all totally different. It's meaningless, you know? Yeah. Just different words, different names. Like, okay, well, I don't, I don't know what that is. Got to relearn everything. Yeah, my experience among at least science-y people in Latin America is that they all use scientific names all the time for birds. Mm -hmm. And in North America, that's not normally the case because the common names are so standardized. Right. Like there is an official body that decides on official names and like you can use them unambiguously. Right. But pretty much everywhere else in the world, that's not the case. Yeah. So if if you're going to talk about birds in Brazil... 
you basically have to use the scientific names. Mm -hmm. They don't have uh, David Sibley down there. (laughs) Did uh, got any other um, name things? Uh, Let me just real quickly cruise through, skim through this article about what Brits call wood lice. Because there's some funny ones in here that we have not come on, come upon, whatever. Uh, chiggy pigs or chicky pigs or chuggy pigs. <laughs> Ch- chiggy wigs. Chucky pigs. Charlie pigs. Um, slunker pigs. Wood pigs. Timber, timber pigs. And penny sows. So okay. pigs. Zo pigs. <laughs> Grandma says See, this is just like this is perfect like I, how many of these are just like results of cockney rhyming slang or something yeah <laughs> totally but it seems i mean this article breaks it down this is from bbc america um and the article is called how many names do brits have for wood lice um so you can look it up and we can list the, the link in there but they go they get regional so they say like yeah. Over in Southeast, there's a dairy theme. People of Kent call wood lice cheesy bugs or cheese rockers, whereas neighboring Surrey prefer cheese logs or cheesy bobs. <laughs> With local distortion also becomes chisel bugs or cheesers and cheese balls. <laughs> cheese logs is really good. <laughs> yeah. There's also monkey peds, monkey peas. To complete huh. the livestock circle, monkey pigs. Okay. Uh, pill bugs, sour bugs. Apparently they're edible, if you're wondering, is what they say. Oh. Okay. Uh, tree pigs, leather jackets, billy bakers, um, ooga poogs, parson pigs. <laughs> yeah, I, I feel like this, you know, I mean, I've heard things about in the UK, like there's persistent dialects that you can pick out, like town to town. Mm-hmm. So there's just something about their language and culture that allows these like super narrow regionalisms yeah they just go so deep into that little universe that they create for themselves cool well i think that's i think that's all that there is to say about wood lice excellent um let me uh quickly mention a few of the references that i used um animal diversity web is my i'm really learning to have that be my home base i love that website It's put on by um, University of Michigan. And it doesn't show up very well if you just Google stuff. You got to go there. Mm. But if they got a page on the thing you want to talk about, like you're set. Nice. They're so good. Nice. So they had one on Porcelia Escaper. Um, they got to get their SEO dialed in, but their content is <laughs> exactly. legit. Uh, referenced a, sort of a review paper on the uh, aridovirus, the one that causes them to turn blue in the journal Crustaceana. <laughs> and then uh, there is a paper I looked at about the their use as bioindicators in environmental pollution series B, comma, chemical and physical. <laughs> hmm. Great name. And then the, the study was uh, by Broly et al. in the journal Zookeys, uh, which is a... Which is interesting. That that journal mostly publishes stuff like describing new species and things. So it's kind of interesting that they had this behavioral study. But, hmm. and I've got one correction, some pseudo correction from the owl episode. Oh, this is exciting. 
there was, um, you know, nerdy Twitter people. I was, um, I'd made a TikTok video kind of with a couple facts from the podcast about biggest and smallest owls. And I said the smallest owl was the, um, this elf owl, elf owl that's in the Sonoran Desert. I think that's pretty solid. But the biggest owl, I said great gray owl. Mm-hmm. And that's more contentious. So it depends what you're measuring. If you're measuring by wingspan or weight, then it's the Blackestin's fish owl, which is by far the biggest, which is in Russia. Mm. Um, So one of the issues when you like look up things like that is it's like North America centric is one issue. Mm -hmm. So um, it's just like this weird owl that is in probably out, out in poorly populated places in Russia. There's just like not a lot of culture behind it. Yeah. Or maybe there is, I don't know. Uh, but it's pretty rad. But if there the, is, it's written with letters that we cannot read. <laughs> exactly. So that's a cool, and they, they straight up fish, like they're fishing owls. Wow. Like that's primarily what they do, which is pretty rad. Nice. Um, however, I could argue that my fact isn't totally wrong because the great gray owl is the longest owl. So if you want to go by length, yeah. apparently gray gray owl's the biggest. And, but and length is kind of equivalent to height in a human measurement? I assume it's like, yeah, beak to tail. So, But when they're standing up, maybe they're like taller. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure. I yeah. mean, it, it's hard to tell if that's like tail length <laughs> really giving them the longest or their body. Who knows? But, yeah, yeah. But good, good to see that there were other ones. There's also an eagle owl in Europe that's consistently bigger un- under most measurements than the great gray owl as okay. well. Okay, all right. So I will, I'm glad to give corrections if, if anyone wants to call me out on stuff in the future. Nice. Anything else? That's all for me. Yeah, if you want to get in touch on uh, social media, we're over at TikTok, Naturistic Series, at Instagram, Naturistic Series, Facebook, Naturistic Series page, me, I'm at Nash Turley on Twitter. YouTube, and also Naturistic Series. Yes. Well, yeah, uh, I think it's, if you want to go straight there, youtube.com slash naturistic. Yes. Naturistic, not Naturistic Series. And you can email us at naturisticseries at gmail.com. And we will be back next time with more stuff. <laughs> <laughs> More nature facts coming your way. See you next time. Peace.